I, I met someone in your congregation this last week, and uh, they said, Mark Johnson, said, there's, there's a, Mark Johnson is scheduled to speak on the 12th uh, at church. And he goes, is that you? I said, yeah. I go, what do you think of that? And he goes, oh, we're not going to be there. So thank you <laughs> for being here today. I really appreciate it. My name is Mark Johnson, and I'm representing Hopeline today. And uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your financial and prayer support of the ministry of Hopeline here in Fairfield County. When uh, Calvary reached out to our executive director, Adrian Gretto, she went through her entire Rolodex. Young people don't know what that is. Entire contacts list or whatever. And uh, looked for all the qualified speakers. None were available. So you're stuck with me. Uh, but hopefully, you know, God will use broken vessels to communicate uh, his message today. So why don't we begin in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to worship. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God of love. And Lord, you showed us love and what it is to be a neighbor, Lord, while we were still disobedient to you. Lord, I just ask that you would take these words and Lord, make them yours and just change the hearts of all of us, Lord, to become more like Christ. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. So, where's, oh, there's, there's the thing I was supposed to be on. Um, there, there is one thing I know a little bit about, and that's me. Uh, so, I'm going to start with a short introduction. Uh, so, the first slide, I'm, I'm going to automatically do the slides. I think Dave's usually, you know, he does it uh, without instructions, but... Um, this way I know where I'm at. So, uh, the next slide. There, that's my family. My wife and I, we have four children. We have two children-in-law. I think those are real kids. Uh, two grandsons. In the picture, uh, you can't really see the second one. Uh, the first one's sitting on him. But uh, Everett Jude was born on uh, July 3rd. He's actually sitting over there. So if you want to meet him, he's, he'll be here after the service. Um, have a... Uh, long-term girlfriend, and, of course, the family dog. You know, our family's in a season of change. This picture uh, was taken in front of our family home that we sold in July. Uh, we lived there for 19 years. It's in Newtown, and it's the house that our, our kids grew up in. And this was the last picture that we, we took uh, at that place. And uh, so this year, we moved to Trumbull, and so we're going to be here at least a year. My uh, Youngest daughter is going to finish her high school uh, at CHS this year. My wife also works uh, at CHS, and uh, we're about a mile down the road, so it's, it's working out really good. Um, God really hasn't revealed to us what's next uh, after that. You know, kind of, we're kind of old to be uh, empty nesters, but uh, he's got a plan for us, and we're looking forward uh, to what that hope and that future is. I've been retired for a couple years, and uh, since that time I've been... Uh, attending online seminary, and uh, as I mentioned about my qualifications before, you know, th there's a good chance I flopped today, but, next slide please. This is my seminary classes for this semester, which I just started, so <laughs> I'm here about a semester early, so I'm learning how to do a sermon, so maybe, maybe if it's not too bad, you can invite me back again, we'll see if that works. Um, and the, and the last, time, last thing I wanted to mention is that uh, my family has worshipped at Stepney Baptist up the road in Monroe for the last 12 or 13 years. So, um, you can go to the next slide. 
As I was preparing for this sermon, I watched two videos uh, that were very compelling. And uh, if you, I would encourage you to do so if you want to know more about the biblical foundations of loving your neighbor, the unborn. Um, if you want, and if you want to uh, search for them, all you have to do is search Sanctity of Life and put the name of the pastor in. And so the two pastors are Tim Rice from uh, Trinity Presbyterian in Lakeland, Florida, and then Matt Chandler uh, from the Village Church in uh, Mound Flower, Texas, in Texas. Um, but the, one of the reasons I bring it up is that I incorporated a couple of the ideas uh, that they had in those uh, videos, and I wanted to give them credit for that as well. So, 2,000 years ago, an expert of the law stands up and asks Jesus what it takes to inherit eternal life. Jesus responds with a great commandment, to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are told that in an effort to justify himself, he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with the parable we all know as the Good Samaritan. This is a story about someone who was robbed, attacked, and left for dead on the side of the road. The first two people to come along are religious titans. That's what I'll call them. They see and recognize the situation, but they decide to pass by. Third person comes down the road is a rejected biracial Samaritan. A person who barely holds human status to the Jews. He cares for, mends the wounds, and takes the person to shelter and promises to pay for all the expenses needed to bring the victim back to health. This is a broad and deep definition for who our neighbor is, and it should challenge us all. So here's Mark's paraphrase of who our neighbor is. It's the next slide. My neighbor's someone who can't help me. He can't help me get a job, can't help me get my kid in a good school, can't even get me tickets to the game. They just can't help. My neighbor is someone in obvious pain. This encounter won't be one of those, hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm okay, kind of conversations. This one's gonna take time. It's gonna be a commitment. It's very likely a very extended commitment. Third is, it's not only gonna cost me time, it's going to cost me much more, most likely more than I want to spend financially, maybe even to the extent it will tremendously stretch or exhaust my resources. Finally, our neighbor is one who has been rejected by society and whose voice has been silenced or never heard. In very unexaggerated terms, next slide please, Tim Rice, one of the preachers, notes that righteousness is inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. Let me repeat that. Righteousness is inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. That is truly loving your neighbor. Hopeline loves its neighbors. All who come through their doors meet all these criteria provided by both Luke, the gospel writer, and Mark, the non-gospel writer, but before we discuss unborn more specifically, I want to discuss life in general and what that means depending upon your worldview. Let's call the topic of this part of the discussion sanctity of life and define it. As I was researching the topic, 
I came across the website named sanctityoflife.org. Next slide, please. It is a nonprofit dedicated to the subject using a Christian worldview and biblical principles. On the main page, it has a drop-down menu for categories titled Life Devalued. This list includes the preborn, disabled, racism, fatherlessness, human trafficking, and the elderly. Our society stratifies life into different levels of quality or value based upon that life's ability to positively impact society. The lives of these categories tend not to meet the minimum standard and are thus deemed lower quality or devalued. Making such a statement is kind of controversial to say the least because in our civilized society, the, the va that values life and spends an incredible amount of effort and resources to assist all life to be provided and cared for. I will address this issue, but first I would appreciate it if you would consider the position to be true. And if it is true, then how did we as a culture arrive here? It's how we define life, its origins, its purpose, and when combined, these factors determine value. Let's take the humanist point of view and assess it. The information provided on the next slide was obtained from the British Humanist Association. I will reference the three humanist manifestos available in the public domain and books by Paul Kurtz, who's an expert in the area. First, let's read the synopsis provided by the Humanist Association that's presented on the screen. So humanist in a nutshell, putting human beings and other living things at the center of your moral outlook. Two, seeing the world as a natural place and looking to science and reason to make sense of it. Three, promoting and supporting human flourishing across all frontiers and championing human rights for everyone. And that's about it. Sounds pretty good. I think we can all say, you know, that's not too bad at all. This document provides the origin and purpose of human life. The origin is found in point two. Next slide, please. The third manifesto is more specific by stating humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. Humanists recognize nature as self-existing. Humanists specifically state that life was created based upon the theory of evolution. There certainly are a lot of, that can be said about this theory. One question that I've always appreciated is, what is the probability that life can be created through that process? Truly an unanswerable question. In the simplest, in an internet search, I came across some probabilities. The first figure is to be used as a point of reference. I just want to set that one out there to kind of start the discussion. This is the number of atoms that are in the observable, observable, observable universe. All right, so think how big the universe is, think how small an atom is, how many atoms are there in the universe, 10 to the 80th power. So we've got 10 followed by 80 zeros. That's how many atoms there are in the universe as we know it. Big number, very big number. That same person uh, who was a secular uh, persuasion said the creationist quote, the possibility of life being created through the evolutionary process is 10 to the 390th power. So that's 10 followed by 390 zeros. 
That's 310 times more or less likely than the number of total atoms in the universe. It's a huge number. So as I looked at other numbers that weren't in the secular community, I came across figures 10 to the 10,390th power, 10 to the 14,134th power. These are huge numbers. All these figures note the impossibility of life to being generated this way. This, however, does not deter the evolutionists. The answer to life existing in our universe is due to the fact there are an infinite number of universes. And it just so happens we live in the one that was the Goldilocks universe, that was the 10 and 14,134th. So, the question is, well, what's the proof of infinite number of universes? Or even two, for that matter. Well, there isn't any. Even the great Wikipedia defines multiverse as a hypothetical group of multiple universes. Based strictly on the theory of evolution, even secular scientists agree that life in general, and human life more specifically, is only a happy accident. Slide, please. Oh, got it. Life's origin is at best accidental. So back to the humanist slide. Point three seems to me to be the purpose of humanity, which says promoting and supporting human flourishing across all frontiers and championing human rights for everyone. While part one is how the process is accomplished, putting human beings and living things at the center of your moral outlook. Next slide, please. Back to the manifesto. Humanists note, ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. That too sounds good. How then do humans, humanists determine human need and interest? Again, from the manifesto. We also recognize the value of new departures in thought, the arts, and inner experience, each subject to analyze by critical intelligence. My interpretation of these two tenets and is that ethical values of humanists are fluid and move to be consistent with the latest information that has been gathered and synthesized. There are no absolute truths, but only truths based upon observation and experience. There are multiple problems with this approach. Next slide, please. This fluidity is of these ethical principles required the writing of a third manifesto due to the fact that the second manifesto seemed to very much support the activities and priorities that were developed and executed by Nazi Germany. The other significant problem with this approach is who gets to determine the resulting ethics from the observations and experience? If history is any indication, it won't be the majority, nor will the outputs be beneficial to society at large, but benefit the elites. Next slide, please. Oh, no, you, you got it. If the origin of life is accidental, and life's purpose is ever-changing and controlled by the elites, how is life's value and dignity created? Human life ends up no different than the life of animals and vegetation. Life just happened, purpose is relegated to survival of the fittest, and death is final. Our lives can't even help those left behind as time is finite and ultimately all die. All accomplishments are futile, and there is nothing but hopelessness. That's my summary of the secular worldview of life. Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about life, 
So I will summarize the biblical worldview here. To begin the discussion, I want to start at the beginning by reading Genesis 1, 26, and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man was created in God's image. Part of the image of God includes the mandate to rule and reign. His image qualifies man to have dominion over all the earth. There are four conclusions to the nature of God's image that I've gotten from Millard Erickson that are significant to our discussion today. First, is the image of God is universal within the, within the human race. There are strong theological defenses for this position, but the one I'm persuaded by is the fact that God prohibits the killing of anyone who bears the image. God doesn't prohibit killing in general, only image bearers. There's no limitation placed on this prohibition and it applies to all humans. The second conclusion is that the fall has not resulted in the complete loss of God's image in mankind. Certainly it has been impacted by sin, as we can see how God's perfect image was executed in the life of Jesus. But this image is readily apparent in all humans as it is what separates us from other life on earth. The third conclusion, the image is structural or part of our human nature. The image is part of who we are and not dependent upon what we do or what we have. The final consideration is the image makes up the elements of human life that enable the fulfillment of human destiny. Erickson states, the image involves the powers of personality that make humans, like God, being capable of interacting with other persons, of thinking and reflecting and of willing freely. So, I'm told one of the third rails in preaching is to never discuss theological issues in a sermon. And besides that, it's kind of dry and it's kind of off topic too, so why did I include it? Because understanding these principles of God's image allows us to recognize the implications of the human race which bears his image. Next slide, please. The first implication is that we belong to God. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus is asked if, we should, if the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. He knows it's a trick because the yes or no question is going to divide his followers and he's going to be accused one way or the other of uh, being insubordinate, either to his religion or to the Romans. And so Jesus says, let me see a coin. And when he looked at it, he goes, whose image is on it? The answer was Caesar's. So we belong to God because his image is upon us, just as Caesar's image was upon the coin. The second implication is that we should pattern our life after Jesus. He was not born into sin, and thus God's image on the humanity of Christ was not corrupted. Jesus struggled in his humanity, but, life, but lived a life without sin. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We who bear the image of God are commanded to conform to the image of the Son. 
The third implication is that humans only experience full humanity when properly related to God. Yes, there are incredible human accomplishments and discoveries, but none achieve the pinnacle of humanity unless connected in relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Our broken and corrupted image can and will be transformed if only we will walk alongside God, beholding His glory. It is a powerful promise. The fourth implication is that Yeah, fourth thing is that, <laughs> that learning and working is good. I thought I only had four. I guess I have five. I was going to read directly. I'm going to read directly from Erickson here. The exercise of dominion is a consequence of the image of God. Humanity is to gain an understanding and control of cre- the creation, developing it to its ultimate potential for its own good and for God. This also means exercising dominion over our own personalities and abilities. Note that the exercise of dominion was part of God's original intention for humanity. It preceded the fall. Work, then, is not a curse, but part of God's good plan. The basis for the work ethic is to be found in the very nature of God who created us to be. End quote. The final implication of God's image is that we, that we're going to discuss is that human life is valuable. Genesis 9-6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God provides special status to those who bear the image. Punishment is severe for the one who kills the image bearer. Also note that God does not say righteous man, but only man. The implication is that sinners also bear his image. Again, noting that God's image is universal. So, to summarize the biblical worldview. Next slide. The origin of life came from a loving creator. The purpose of life is to be in relationship with God and to conform to the image of his son. And although we didn't discuss it, our hope is eternal. Eternal relationship with a loving God. Let's compare the two worldviews. Next one. Yeah. Previously I noted that death is the final event for the humanist worldview. On the slide I note the ultimate hope the humanist religion will die at the end of time, or at least the death of the universe. Because I'm a nerd and I have the mic, I, I looked up some things that I'm going to share with you. So, in four billion years, the Milky Way galaxy, the one that we live in, is going to collide with the Andromeda galaxy. So, the scientists don't think that you know the stars are going to collide. It's going to be big fireworks because there's so much distance between the stars and gravity. But that doesn't mean that that uh, orbits are going to be maintained and planets won't be thrown out of solar systems and things aren't going to go crazy. So uh, even if the world survives in its happy place to the sun and its happy place in the galaxy, in five billion years, the sun will quit, will exhaust its supply of hydrogen and start burning helium and it will turn into a red giant star. And as such, its diameter will expand to the extent it will encompass the orbit of the Earth. Of course, the Earth will have been burnt to a crisp long before that, and there will be no life on Earth. Well, even if man figures out how to go to other inhabitable planets, 
In 10 billion years, the scientists tell us that the universe will have exhausted all its fuel. It'll be expended, it'll be gone, and the temperature of the entire universe will be absolute zero, and it'll be devoid of life, light, and heat. So that's the best hope of any worldview that doesn't have an eternal alternative. Okay, back to the regular scheduled programming. Let's compare the worldviews. It's right there. Based upon the life's origin, purpose, and hope, it's easy to determine which worldview provides a higher standard for the value of life. Now let's transition our discussion of how we as Christians should show love to our neighbor, the unborn. Next slide, please. Maybe I was behind the curve, but I was surprised when writing a paper on abortion last semester that the question of when life begins is agreed to almost unanimously by all biologists, both Christian and secular. That is, human life begins at conception. Dr. Norman Ford, a widely published biologist from the St. John's University states, although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new, Genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and the female merge. A cell with new and unique DNA is created, and that cell is human life. In 1973, the Supreme Court stated in their decision that it could not determine when human life began, and that assessment was the basis of their decision. So, now that we have universal agreement when life begins, that means that the abortion rights discussion is over, right? No, it's not. The argument is not when life begins, but when does personhood begin? When conception occurs, there are two lives, the mother and the product of conception, the latest term for dehumanizing a baby. It is an obvious, when one looks at those two different lives, that the value of the mother is by far more valuable than the product of conception. Over time, those values begin to converge, but it's up to the mother, doctor, and family to determine those values. This is a very logical argument and seemingly a rational approach that holds a grain of truth and wisdom. Admittedly, the first time I read this, it made sense to me. This is exactly why we need to look at biblical wisdom and not depend upon our own. Our, our rational thinking is so corrupted by sin, we have no concept of what is true and how our conclusions are completely misguided. Isaiah 55 has God speaking where he tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and neither his ways are our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. This is why we should take every decision to God. This theological truth has been something that has really cha challenged me this year. Using my logic and ration, I too would be like Peter and do everything in my power to save Jesus from death and a cross. After all, the Messiah is here to rule and reign forever. My personal wisdom, if successfully executed, would have eliminated the possibility of salvation to all humankind. I know that's very exaggerated. But I'm truly challenged to believe that my day-to-day -day decisions need to be directed by Him. And if they're not, kingdom progress is halted or slowed. Please be challenged by this too, and as Paul commanded to for us to pray continually so that we too can be obedient to God's word and work in our lives. Back to the secular argument for abortion. 
Its logic doesn't promote the life of the mother as it may sound. It devalues the life of the baby. The biologist told us that human life and God tells us human life has his image upon it. This is not a mass of tissue that is the product of conception, but a life that David tells us in the Psalms is knit together in our mother's womb and fearfully and wonderfully made by God. This was a life that was known before creation. In Ephesians, Paul tells us God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. As Christians, we must stand on the truth of God's word and proclaim the value of human life. Tim Rice in his video discusses three justifications society gave, including Christians, for slavery. First is, they're not human, they're subhuman. This assessment gives us permission to do whatever we want to them. Second is, slaves were property. They're my property and I'm free to deal with them however I wish. The final justification that society couldn't afford not to have slaves, because without them, the harvested products would be too expensive and the economy would fall apart. There were many other justifications, but using just these three and recognizing they are still being used today in the abortion argument is very enlightening. Product of conception is not a person. Product of conception is treated as property and you can't afford that product of conception. Most probably all of us here believe slavery was wrong and those three justifications were just are unfounded, but yet we allow those same justifications for abortion in our society. Look, these justifications are just excuses that are used to devalue life. When life is devalued, anything can be acceptable. Black lives were devalued, slavery was justified. Certain ethnicities were devalued. In euthanasia, immoral human ex experimentation and mass killings were justified by Nazi Germany. Devaluing life is the enemy's first step in his battle against God's image. It is inconveniencing someone else so we or I can be convenienced. The opposite of Tim Rice's definition of righteousness. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is part of the conversation. Abortion statistical information is received by the government on a voluntary basis only. So any and all information are strictly estimates and most likely conservative in nature for obvious reasons. The National Right to Life uses the Guttmacher Institute estimate of 850,000 annual abortions in the U.S. that have cumulatively totaled 62.5 million since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was enacted. And each, if each of these represent a killing of a human, there's no way to digest those figures. The Christian Post in their January 4, 21, 2021 article estimated that in 2020, the worldwide abortions totaled 42.6 million. Again, an unbelievable statistic. To put that in perspective, the world's population in 2020 was 7.7 .7 billion. Total deaths were 69 million. When death by abortion is 61% of all other deaths on the planet, the enemy seems to be winning this battle by sowing a culture of death. Before I provide this last set of statistics, I'm going to ask you a strange question that I want you to answer silently in your head. Have you ever experienced the church to be a judgmental and condemning group of people? 
John 3.17 tells us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus brings no condemnation, nor judgment, and at least for the rest of the day, let all of us hearing my voice do the same. Statistically speaking, one in four women have an abortion. Statistically speaking, abortions for people of faith are no different than the population at large. Statistically speaking, one in four women in this building have had an abortion. Statistically speaking, at least one in four men here have been personally involved in an abortion. This is the last statistic for today. Only 7% of Christian women who have had an abortion discuss their abortion decision with anyone at church. That's 7%. Not a pastor, not an elder, not a close friend, no one at church. The church has not historically been a place for healing. Hopeline is just that. If you find yourself feeling condemned, guilty, or devalued because of an abortion, please reach out confidently. The next slide. I apologize. I meant for you guys to be looking at that next slide. Please reach out to Hopeline confidentially, or you can speak with Julie or Kim or myself after the service. Love to talk to you. And even before you do that, know today that you are a bearer of his image, and your life is incredibly valuable, and he has a hope and a future for you. Christians are criticized for being overzealous in their pro-life position and support for the unborn, and then less committed to the social implications of those efforts. I think there's some truth in that statement. At Hopeline, the unborn and the family of the aborted are cared for, nurtured, and loved. But that is still not enough for the Christian community. Our pro-life position has to be for all image bearers. Those that were listed on the Sanctity of Life page are a good start. We should also include those in our church pews, our physical neighbors, and all who put God, and all who, who God puts into our circle of influence. All lives represent kingdom value. Don't walk by. Be a good Samaritan. Hopeline is a great example of how to love your neighbor. The early church also provides a good example to us today. In many aspects, the Roman government and culture were no different than our own. There was a law in the books that required deformed infants to be killed. That deformity could be something as simple as being a wrong gender or the fact that the pregnancy was unwanted. A deformity in Roman culture is the same wide avenue that the health of the mother creates in our law today. Anyway, there were no civilized abortion clinics, which is an oxymoron. So people would take their babies to the local dump and leave them there to die of exposure or predator attack. The early, an early church leader, Tertullian, wrote, Christians sought out the tiny bodies of newborn babies from the refuse and dung heaps and raised them as their own or tended to them before they died and gave them a proper funeral. The early church had not only heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, but acted out what it's like to love their neighbor. My challenge for all of us today is to pay attention don't just walk by like the priest and the Levi, but ask Jesus if he would like to use your hands, your feet, and your wallet to love your neighbor. If you can't think of any neighbors, you might start by inconvenience yourself 
and convenience those who walk into Hope Line's offices, you will be welcomed with open arms. As I conclude, I'm going to ask the, the band to come back up. I got three thoughts. The first is concerning the Samaritan. Why did Jesus choose the Samaritan? As I noted earlier, they were a mixed race that included Jewish heritage. Because of this, the Jews hated them more than the Gentiles with no Jewish ethnicity. I think Jesus used the Samaritans because they were despised. Even after he loved his neighbor, he didn't change, didn't change his status or his position. If we were to act and be the good Samaritan, we can expect to be rejected and hated by the world. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives that results in good works will not change our status or position. Jesus told us we'd be rejected just as he was rejected. When you do encounter persecution, when you are loving your neighbor, be like Paul, encounter privilege to suffer for kingdom purpose. The second item I want to share is a story about choosing life. In 2002, somewhere in the Anhui province in China, a woman found herself pregnant. We don't know her specific circumstances, but we know it was unexpected, let's say, unwanted. Millions of abortions are performed every year in China, but she made the decision for life. Finally, the child was born and she, abandoned, and she was abandoned at the gate of the Welfare Institute where the city housed its orphans, its infirmed, its elderly, and its insane. The institution put an ad in the paper noting the recovered child with no response. There seemed little hope for a life that had been devalued. I don't know who that woman was, but I am eternally grateful that she chose life. Next slide. See, in 2005, my family recognized that it was incomplete, and we traveled to China to retrieve our fourth child, Annie Catherine Johnson. The blessing of her life on our immediate family is not measurable. She knows Jesus Christ as her personal savior and is pursuing his work in her life. He has given her a hope and a future. And only in eternity will we be able to know the impact. The last thing I want to leave you with is the most important. If there's only one thing you remember today about loving the unborn, this is it. It's about Jesus, God Almighty the ultimate creator of all things. He could have come as Caesar, the ruler of the world. He could have come as the greatest king the Jews ever knew, and he will. Ultimately, he will. Or he could have been the greatest religion, religious teacher of all time, but he didn't. Jesus came as an unexpected teenage pregnancy.